Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's show, we've got a special guest, Mr. Joshua Hood. And the book is The Treadstone Transgression, another book in the Robert Ludlum series. This was a fantastic read. I'm telling you, it reads like a movie. We'll be talking about that, where his inspiration came from, what was it like being approached by the Ludlum estate to carry on this legacy, and a whole lot more. Another thing I love, I'm talking to so many friends from the South, so you're going to hear uh, Southern accents kicking in pretty good. <laughs> it's a whole lot of fun. So why don't we just get right to it? He's waiting in the green room. Joshua Hood and the Treadstone Transgression here on the Thriller Zone. Hello. Good morning, sir. Morning. How are you? I'm so good. So nice to see your smiling face. Excellent. Just <laughs> testing out this new holster I got. The tension was a little bit tight. Yeah? Let me Trying see to... it. It's um, actually one of the ones um, made by Odin Holsters. They, uh, I used one in the last Treadstone book. They're a guy out in Utah, hand makes them all, so... That must be uh, a really great byproduct of some of your past. Before we get into the show, I just wanted to say, uh, that, first of all, thank you for your service. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. And that must be a neat byproduct of being in the position you are because you get access uh, to the latest greatest. And I've watched a couple of other of your uh fellow officers be able to uh you know they talk they, they go out to the range and they they're always practicing and they're showing off their the tools of the trade and uh you know for guys like me who don't have access to any of that it's just a fascinating thing to watch yeah i guess it's one of those things i mean my wife she like rolls her eyes she's used to it now it's been we've been married 11 years now so when i was back on swat you know, we would go to the range and she'd always get mad at me because I would think I'd got all the bullets out, but there'd always be one that would end up in the dryer and it'd be clicking and she'd be like, can you just not check your pockets? And, you know, so it was just kind of like, I try, but um, it's slowed down, you know, since I've been riding full time, but it's a good stress reliever. And to, I make sure to buy everything that I put in a book because I don't want, I don't know if anybody would listen to me, you know, I'm like, on par with Jack Carr or something, but I don't want anybody to be like, you know, somebody's paid you for that or whatever. It's like, no, I bought everything that is in these books that, you know, is legal. Like I use them personally and that's why, you know, I put them in the books. And so it's, uh, as they say, it's boring, but it's part of my life. <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't, I don't find it boring at all. I mean, uh, look next, if you all of a sudden called me up, Joshua, and you said, uh, Hey Dave, can you uh can you direct me to the right microphone for my podcast? I'd go, uh, you know, it's funny you should ask. I I I've got that pretty well sewn up. Uh I've got uh four here and I got about three more in the booth and I got six in the closet. So, you know, it's tools of the trade, toys of the trade, you know, we 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 hang out with and we collect what we love, right? So do you do um 
stuff like uh, narration also for books and things like that? I do audio books. Yeah. Audio books, uh, commercials, trailers, bumpers. I was the voice of NASCAR back in the day. Uh, you know, I've been doing this my whole life. Cause I've got a book. Um, I'll turn this one in two months from now coming out with Blackstone. It's a new series that I've started. And, um, Treadstone was the first time I'd ever gotten an opportunity to be like, hey, who do you want to use as a narrative? And you know, I picked a few people and they weren't they weren't available. So they went with the guy who does it. I think his name's Ron Butler, I believe. He does a great job, but mm -hmm. I've always liked the way your voice sounds. And I think, you know, if you're free or whatever, I don't Blackstone seems to give, you know, authors a lot more um leeway. Who would you like to use? And I think it's really important for a book. Um for you as author to have a narrator that would sound like you want the book to sound. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> Wondered if it'd be okay for me to throw your name into the hat when it comes down to it. A hundred percent. Or as we say back home, a hundred percent. Where are you from? I'm from North Carolina, born in Winston-Salem. Oh, well, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. So not far. Exactly. No, we're, uh, it's funny. I had, uh, I've had a couple of Southern boys on the show recently, Peter Ferris, the most recent. And as we got to talking, uh, I, I caught myself sliding into my, my, my Southern accent and I wouldn't even realize it until all of a sudden I heard myself and I'm like, uh, okay, let me pull it back and be a little, <laughs> it's just kind of hilarious, but I didn't even realize I had an accent. So I started, um, I guess, working, publishing a few books and then talking to, you know, the people in New York and they would mention something and said, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have an accent. And <laughs> like, yeah, you do. And so. Uh, sir, we beg to differ. <laughs> yeah. I'm, we're listening to it and you definitely do. Now, the fact that you said, I thought about you means that you, so you've heard this show before, as I'm assuming. I listened to this show. I was actually uh, thinking of the book. Um, you were just talking about it. I put it on my list to get. Um, uh, the Devil Himself? Yeah. Peter Ferris. I believe yeah. so, yeah. And uh, that was a great episode. I liked, you know, I really liked how, you know, you guys talked. He was right on when he talked about um, the genres, whatever genre you're in. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to break into it, but the fresh approach that kind of breaks these rules, like, I think that's, May I think it's that's we need more of that, more of that fresh air. And I'll try to do a little bit with Treadstone, but um, you know, you can't unlearn what you already know. And so for I love like guys who come in and they have an idea for a book and they, you know, they're like, I don't care. Cause when I started, there were these rules. You have to write it like this or like that. And editors, you know, that's what they wanted. And the books became very vanilla. They're just, everything's the same, different setting, different name, but it's the same book. And um, there's a fearlessness that comes with the idea of like, I'm going to come in, I'm going to write, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to dance with the one who brought me. And um, that was like a really, really great podcast. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for that, Josh. Uh, I, that was actually one of my favorites. Um, I don't know why it was just, to me, it was the perfect storm. Um, I liked the guy. I like what he had to say. I love the story. He had some really great insights. And I think probably what got your attention was I launched a new feature called if this scene could talk. So I took one of his favorite scenes 
and uh, made it come alive. And he loved it, and it's gotten all kinds of attention. So thank you for those nice words. And yeah, it was, it was fun. A great book. Great book. Uh, you will not be disappointed. But this book right here, young man, look at the color. Look at the snap. I mean, Treadstone Transgression. When I hear the word trans, Treadstone, interesting thing. Uh, and I think I mentioned this uh, probably in a promo uh, talking about you on the way to come onto the show. Jason Bourne and that whole uh, series of stories is one of my go-to. Like if it's a rainy weekend and I got, I'm not in the mood to do anything. I've just spent the whole day working in the yard and I just want to put on something. It's almost always the Jason Bourne series. I can watch them over and over again. And when I was reading this book, and I, I hope this is a compliment, I literally felt like it's so well-crafted as it pertains to the pacing of a movie. It felt like I was watching a movie. It was great. That's, um, you know, one thing I try to do with all the books, but specifically this was you're, you're walking into uh, territory, someone else's house almost. And even though you're writing something different, um, a different character. I thought right away that, you know, the first thing you have a lot of people who've read the books, but the younger generation, they, they know Jason Bourne from the movies. And um, I thought it was very important to kind of keep up that kinetic uh, activity that they had in the movies. It was a very fast paced movie and try to make it as visual as possible. Well, your chapters uh, had a very specific rhythm. Uh, it was like, da, 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 bam, bam, da, 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 bam. I mean, the pages were turning in a very specific kind of rhythm. Whether you created that on purpose or not, you had just enough of a hook at the end of each chapter, which, of course, one of the greatest tools of for a writer. But it was, uh, yeah, it was one of those things that was just like, man, this is, I know this is going to make a movie. We, we won't talk about that too much until we get down to rapid fire questions. But uh, first of all, uh, hey, did I say welcome to the show, by the way? Welcome. Probably. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be on here. Yeah. Um, I saw an interview with you and Mark Graney and uh, Barb, uh, Poison Pen. Barbara Peters. Barbara Peters. Thank you. Uh, she's such a sweetheart and, uh, Mark, I have such a humongous admiration for him you, and you guys, you know, you're at the top of your game, uh, and in great company, uh, just a great conversation. Well, he's a good friend of mine and, uh, he actually lives not far from me. Um, I've had, you know, the pleasure of knowing him. Um, when I first met him, maybe back in 2013 or 14, the gray man, you know, he was just started writing the Clancy books. And the first thing is that everybody knows this. Not only is Mark the nicest human being in the world, he's also the hardest working writer I've ever met. And so he was writing these big Clancy books and the gray man, his own series at the time. And I remember when he was known for Clancy and gray man was still, you know, court gentry was, yeah, it might make it, maybe not. And now, uh, you know, anybody who ever asked me, like, what what's, uh, advice do you have for becoming an author? I was like, just look at what Mark's done. It was it was by sheer hard work. And, you know, he's never, he, he always pushes the envelope. And now, you know, that's flipped where he 
you know, he's made the New York Times list number one off of his own books alone. And uh, anytime talking to him, like, I learned so much from him, even though we've known each other for a while. He's just a true craftsman. He is a true craftsman. And you know, one of the things I admire the most, and this is your show, by the way, but I, since you brought it up, I'm going to mention this. He is so unaffected. And I have been in and around Hollywood for a better part of my life. And you can always tell the really good guys because they, no matter how much success pushes them to the top, they're just, they're still, they, they remain the same guys. And he, unless he's a great actor, he just impresses me that way. No, that's just who he is. And, you know, that's one thing that, you know, I try to emulate is the fact that he is an author first and everything is about the book. And so getting a movie deal or whatever else, those are always, he likes that, but it's in the periphery. You know, he said he doesn't do a lot of marketing. He doesn't try to, you know, get, uh, you know, Hey, this is my new watch. You know, some guys you see they're sponsored by this or that it's only about the writing and it is what, he's done with that and his craft that has gotten him uh this far and you know now people say you have to have multi-platforms and everything and he says no it's it's about the writing you write a good book and you keep writing good books and you're gonna get there josh that is such a good point i'm so glad you said that because so many people that come on the show they talk about uh oh it takes this or it takes that and you can always tell the guys that are really hitting it is they say things similarly to that. They say, you know, uh, I mean, Twitter's nice. Uh, You know, it's fun. Instagram's colorful. Uh, By the way, I love some of your shots of your son. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's precious. Uh, But at the end of the day, if you weren't putting, if you weren't lifting and working those muscles and putting the time in the chair to really craft the best story you possibly can, all that other stuff. I mean, come on, right? Well, it's all distraction. And, you know, like the only reason I have a social media is for books. And yes, I guess in some ways it does help. But, you know, I've struggled, you know, speaking about my son, having kids, a family. Being an author for me is it's a very selfish job because you're sitting alone by yourself thinking about people that don't exist creating you know these stories and so for me you know they talk about flow and things and when you get into writing you're in that you know time just goes away you don't know and um for me it's it's really hard to leave that because you know you go home you're talking to the kids but you're you know that part of your brain's still like trying to figure out that problem and um i've always said and i believe a lot of successful you know, it's, it's good and it's bad. Like I can't, I've never done heroin, but I imagine like being an author for me feels like that. It's like, you're either thinking about it or you're doing it kind of as an, you know, a police officer, I've met drug addicts. And so everything is about that one thing. And that's kind of what writing is. And the story is everything. Nothing else matters. Twitter, you know, I would do this for free. It's nice that I get paid to do it, but, you know, it is that love for the story for, you know, everybody, I believe that I know that writers have started off as readers and it's just, the story is everything. The rest of it's just kind of keeps you from doing what you really want to do. Boy, that is spot on. You know, 
you made me think of going back to the early days when I got into radio. I, I was like 16, 15, 16, 17. And I said, man, if I can do that, I'd do it for free. And I practiced and practiced. And, you know, and if you, if you put in the time, you're going to, the cream's going to rise to the top. And it did. And, and look at us now. I do want to do this before we get into Treadstone Transgression, which we're going to refer to repeatedly throughout the show. I'd love to get back uh, and, and dive into Joshua Hood a little bit. And uh, for my listeners who don't know us, don't know you, I'd love to, if you could tell us before, before you came this big international sensation. Uh... <laughs> no, that's not me. <laughs> yeah. Come on now. Uh, yeah. Tell us what life, what were you doing? I, I know you did a lot of service time. So can you just give me a brief little snippet of what you were doing both both professionally uh like uh, job wise and military i would love that well um it's funny we were talking both of us being from the south i'm just you know a redneck from tennessee i graduated college and enlisted in the military went to uh, the 82nd airborne uh deployed to iraq and then afghanistan um as an infantryman uh finished that uh, got out in the job market at that time. I think it was like 2008, maybe everything had kind of just the housing bubble, everything had kind of gone to crap. Yeah. And I stumbled into a job at uh, the sheriff's department and uh, here in Shelby County. And uh, we have a full-time SWAT team. And because of my military service, I was able to try out for the team early and made it. And I spent, I think like seven or eight years, um, on SWAT, eventually becoming um, the sniper team leader. And then um, my wife had our son, Jake, our first kid. And then it was kind of, I'd been writing a little, I think I'd published two, maybe three books while I was in SWAT. And um, the opportunity for Treadstone came out. And I, I, you know, being a police officer and all that stuff is kind of like, I didn't want my children to have to deal with that. And so I, you know, prayed about it and then was like, okay, let's try this. So I just quit and started writing full-time. Wow. Now, so yeah. when you said you were published before, those were non-Ludlam uh, uh, books. They were, and was it self-published or traditional? Uh, they were traditional through Simon & Schuster. My first book was uh, Clear by Fire. Okay. And then Warning Order was next. And then I did a little bit of ghostwriting and then... Uh, I think it was 2017 or 18, around that time. That's when the, the Ludlam Estate approached me. I guess it was 2018. And um, I've been blown up a lot, so my memory is not good with Nate's. It's all good. <laughs> it's all <laughs> good. write this stuff down. <laughs> it's all good. My nemesis was red wine, so I understand that. Um, the, the, mind, the great mind eraser. Um, so tell me about that experience. I'm trying to imagine, I was talking to Mark about, you know, when their estate approached him, I'm like, what is it like when the Ludlam estate says, uh, Hey, Joshua, come in here a second. We want to talk to you. I mean, tell me what that is like. Well, I had gone with Mark to Bauschacon. I think it was in Florida. And I met his, uh, editor, Tom Colgan, who's now my editor. And he, He's kind of like the godfather slash kingmaker of these estate books. And um, I was about to start another book. Um, actually, I pitched a book to him. He was interested. About to start that. And I got a call from Mark. He's like, hey, man, um, don't start anything yet. Just 
you know, wait. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I can't tell you. Just like, don't sign any contracts or do anything. It's like, okay. And then the next day I got a call from Tom Colgan and he said, Hey Josh, um, you know, basically, would you be interested in trying out for a, a book through the love of estate? And I thought, and I told him, I was like, I think you got the wrong number, man. And he's like, no, you know, I'm serious. And so obviously um, I've always said that it was like, Robert Ludlam gives you the keys to his Bentley, right? And he wants you to drive it. And you're thinking the whole time, like, man, like, I hope I don't crash it. Like, you know, you know that when you return it, it better be clean, full tank of gas, and not a scratch on it. And that's kind of how I went into this. But um, talking earlier about, you know, the Bourne movies, I knew, I knew kind of right away what I wanted to do with it. Um, and they gave me the freedom because there wasn't anything about Treadstone to kind of just create uh, this character in this world. And um, it was just a great experience. I'm trying to imagine sitting in your chair. <clears throat> and I, I bet you I would say a similar thing, Josh. Uh, Tom, I think I think you've got the wrong number. Did you dial 619? You know, uh, but... I guess it begs the question, he saw something somewhere that said, this guy's got the goods, this guy can do this, or they wouldn't have, you know, they're, they're not in the flattery business, they're in the writing business. And, you know, that's one thing that I struggle with through this, and um, even a little bit earlier in my career, um, is you have to dance with the one that brought you, you know, and it's, they saw that something in me, whatever it was, still don't know, but that's what they want. And so immediately the first question was like, how much Josh Hood do I put in here? And how much Robert Ludlum do I put in here? And, you know, it's always, I was always thinking like, does it need to be more Ludlum-esque? And then you have to give yourself permission to fail under your own power. You know, I'm not gonna, you know, say, well, if I, if I write more like Ludlum, maybe this will be more acceptable or whatever. You have to have, like you said, the faith that they picked you for a reason and they want what you can do, not what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting when I was reading your book and, uh, you know, again, uh, you referenced Jack Carr. Jack Carr is one of those guys that has probably, I would love to see his toy chest and when i say toy i'm not being disrespectful i'm you know i'm a boy in his he toys. calls them toys yeah i would love to walk into his cavernous room of toys and see all that he has because he's always referencing them he shows them on his social media and so forth one thing that i always find and i'm just going to say this straight up i find it a little hilarious that when he goes to and i say this to my wife when he goes to mention a gun he doesn't just say he grabbed the gun or he grabbed the nine millimeter no he grabs the name and the type and the uh, the grain of the bullet and the speed with which it leaves the gun and you do only a snippet of that. And uh, I'm not saying either way is right or wrong. Uh, if, if you're one of those geeks that, that geeks out on all that minutia of detail, that's the guy, right? You, uh, my, the way I read, I'm, you know, I'm moving so fast that uh, 
Right. Now, you mentioned a Gulfstream uh, G650. I happen to know that plane because uh, I have a friend who has one, and it is a remarkable uh, machine. And so, you know, I'm instantly there with you. I know what the leather looks like, how many seats are in it, and so forth. But, you know, sometimes I don't need all that information. It's still fascinating. And, and, and the fact that you have all that width of knowledge is kind of amazing. Well... It's, it's, it's really a balancing act. I think Mark and I talked about this on one of those podcasts. A lot of people look at that as filler. Um, and I think that yes and no, because like this genre kind of began with Clancy and he was known for his like encyclopedic knowledge of all this stuff. And that was before the internet. So he was literally going to the library, reading through periodicals, you know, uh, there were some things I've heard a story about where the Secret Service or the FBI came to him and was like, how do you know about this? He's like, oh, it was in, you know, this trade journal. And they're like, oh, God, like that's supposed to be classified. And um, so at when you're first starting out, you, you want to put all these things in here because it you think when it does lends to your authenticity. But a lot of people, you know, I'll give it to my wife and she'll be like, like it's a gun, who cares? And so you have to learn to kind of sand that. And when I go into detail specifically about a piece of kit or a weapon or a bullet, you know, you have fans that really like that. And so you you, you want to give them what they want. But when I go into specific detail, it's for a reason. It's, you know, like, oh, he's using a 168 grain uh, 308 bullet and he's shooting through glass. Well, that needs to be a bonded bullet because otherwise it just has a copper jacket. When it goes to the glass, the glass is going to strip the jacket off and you just have this piece of lead. And so you need to have a bonded bullet, which has another layer. So that way nobody can say like that, that couldn't happen. And you say, well, it actually could happen. I've actually done it. And, you know, it's just, we were talking about social media earlier. There's a lot of people who just, I don't understand how much time they have in their day or whatever. They read something, and from the last Treadstone, I had started off wanting to use a DC-3 uh, airplane, uh, but it didn't have a ramp, and I knew I needed scenes where they're pushing stuff out of a ramp, so I went with a different aircraft, but there was like this little thing that I had left out, and the DC-3 has um, a wheel in the back. The other aircraft I picked didn't, but I, I didn't take this out. I guess I just didn't see it. So you get all these like emails, like I was on page 30 and you said this, uh, it doesn't have a wheel in the back. And you're like, how much time do you have on your hand to go stop what you're reading, go find my email address and then send me this little nasty gram. It's like, <laughs> you know, this is, this, I'm so glad you said that. This is a funny little point. Um, <laughs> I always want to say, is your life so miserable that you've got to sit around and pick apart stuff? You know, and, and you're supposed, you try to be nice, uh, but it's like kind of become indicative of the culture. Yeah. It's just like, I grew up, my mom would say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I try to just like live my life under the don't be an asshole. Rule. And <laughs> I just cannot imagine how much time people have where they're just like, I got to find this guy's email address right now and tell him that. And it's like, what am I going to do? I, I can't go buy all the books back, change it and, you know, 
what what is the purpose of this? And um, I guess you're just glad they're reading it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I grew up with the same, you know, we grew up, well, in the South, it is, it, it is true. If you don't have anything nice to say, and, and I guess it's also this, I'm amazed, and this is a little bit of a rant, so if you'll bear with me for about 20 seconds, I'll be done with it. Um, I look at a lot of social media, and I think I'm just now starting to get to the point where I'm, I'm kind of over so much of it, kind of what you were saying, in that when, when I start seeing people on social media, and I know this is a tangent, start telling me what they're eating for breakfast, you know, and, and, and they're petting their cat. I, I go, wow. And, and if they're writers, I'm like, well, how many pages did you do today? You know, how many words did you get in? And did that supersede the cat rubbing? I mean. And that's why I like, you know, you look at Jack Carr, the discipline he has to do all the stuff that he does. You know, he's out hunting, he's out, you know, donating his time for a veteran charity. And he's still, you know, out almost at the every picture it says, and now back to the book. You know, yeah. he goes back and makes sure that he gets his, you know, pages in. And the same with Mark. And, you know, that kind of circles back to what we talked about earlier is that if it's not making you a better writer, it's a distraction in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't really have time for it. That is the that's the soundbite right there. If it if it's not about the book, if you're not making a better book, it's just a distraction. That is so true. And let's go back a little bit. Um, I want to know: Did you always? So many of my uh, um, guests on the show have always. I hear stories of always having wanted to be a writer. I was writing when I was a child. My mother was a librarian. I was around books. Did you? always want to be a writer and did you always know that you had some kind of a gift for that because it is a gift it is you know you you do have to have a little spark of something to launch the career i think i've i knew that i wanted to be a writer i mean ever since you have that ability to know that you want a job you know i remember like i want to be a fireman i want to be this and then you get to the point where you understand kind of what that means. Like, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut, like everybody, you know, whatever. And I don't know, I think I was about eight or nine when I decided oh, that's what I wanted to do. And, I, you know, I was starting to write little short stories and stuff like that. And I remember telling my mom one day and she said, well, you're going to have to get a real job. And I was like, well, this seems like a real job. She's like, well, the only writers who make any money are those who write ransom notes. And, um, <laughs> you know. But she was right. And, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, there's a, you look at all the statistics of, and I hear a lot, how many people say, I could never be a published writer. I could never do this. And you start breaking those statistics down, their excuses. My personal excuse was I'd always wanted to be a writer. I went in the military because like, I really didn't have anything to write about. And looking back on it now, I realized I was running from that because you, you know, you have to put out a lot of yourself to do it, put yourself out there for failure. Um, but what got me off the couch was I had a team leader when I was in the army and they used to make fun of me because I'd gone to, you know, just whatever, uh, that I'd gone to college first and then enlisted. And so I told him I wanted to be a writer and they thought that was hilarious. And so this guy, his name is Jody. Um, he got out, I think, a year or two before me. I didn't think about it. I hadn't written anything. I got a call from him one day, and he's living in Utah. He had just 
graduated college with a degree in creative writing and published his first book. And I remember like that was literally the day that I started writing like for real, the first book I wrote that got published. Um, I was like, how in the, you know, that was my dream. He's like, well, you know, you said it was possible and it is. And so literally I got off the phone with him and I went upstairs and got this dusty old laptop that I had taken with me to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I started clear by fire and you, I was rejected 82 times by agents before I finally got the agent that sold the book. And every day when you're faced with these rejections, you know, Stephen King talks about it. He had a nail on his wall and every rejection letter he put on there until there were so many rejection letters that the nail came out of the wall and he had to get a bigger one. And so you start looking at how many ways you can fail or whatever. And in the end, it just comes up to like, how bad do you want this? And I was willing to like, I will rewrite this book. I knew it was good. To answer your question, I knew that I was able to write from an early age, but it just got down to the mindset of like, I don't care if I have to rewrite this thing a million times. Like this book is good enough. I believe in myself and it will get published. And it did. And it's not because I'm great. It's just that a little skill and a whole lot of hard work is all you really need. A little bit of skill and a lot of hard work is all you need. Yeah. And a little dash of luck too, I think. I think we yeah. learned that. Yeah. Peter Ferris was talking about that uh, this past week. Now, um, you made me think of something and that is this. It, it, I, My wife and I were talking about this recently. Uh, I had, I've self-published all my own books because I, I wanted to wait till I felt like I had the book that was really worthy of going to the level that you are. And I- You're still looking for that book. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Well, and I, so I'm saying to Tammy, you know, we were talking about how, uh, I put out one and it, and it got, had some hiccups in it, had some typos and so forth. And we stopped and we had this conversation and it, and it was this, and I think it'll resonate. Why was I in such a hurry to get out a self-published book? And, and I still kick myself to this day because here's why. I was trying to do the homework to get to the place, for instance, where you are, say. And I was, I, I thought, well, if I just keep putting it out and putting it out, the problem is I didn't take that extra little bit of time to make sure everything was buttoned up. And what happened is I got enough reviews going, hey, it was a great story, but uh, this idiot had some typos and so forth. And, you know, that's embarrassing. So the reason I bring that up is, you know, back to your point about hard work, it, it, it's got to be the best it can possibly be because even more now than ever before, the competition is so severe for our attention that if you are lacking in any way, shape, or form, you're going to get outed right away. People are going to go, oh, yeah, it's a pretty good story, but uh, you had typos or, you know, the cover was really bad or whatever. You... The competition is so keen that you really got to make sure every step of the way is the best possible. Would you agree with that? I do. I also, for me, once you learn the craft and what you're doing, I have to remind myself, you know, every day that done is better than perfect. Because you can sit there. I've There's typos in this book, I guarantee you. I've seen some things in this book where uh, – Right at the very beginning, I believe in the first chapter, it says 
grams. He's talking about a bullet. It said grams instead of grains. And I know I didn't write it there. It just somehow got mixed up, you know, by something that happens. But you see that and you kind of wince. And But you can never – there is no such thing as perfect. You know, there's no perfect circle. And what a lot of people don't realize is that this is a job. It's not – art where you're just sitting there in your ivory tower and it comes to you like the books are made in the editing process not in the writing process yeah you know when you pull a diamond out of you know the ground it doesn't look like anything no not something you put on your (laughs) yeah no it's only once they've cut it and they've you know they they sanded they've shined it they polished it they cut away more and this whole time you're looking at this big diamond that weighed whatever carrots and when they're done with it, it's tiny, you know, it's like two carrots, three carrots, but it's, it's beautiful. And that's, you know, I think that goes back to one of the things I never understood, but the kill your darlings. It's like, sometimes you have to take that hatchet to parts of your book. That's not working. That's a really good analogy. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way, but that really is. Uh, and you know what, there is a quote, Josh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pull it up on my head right now, but it has to do with so, uh, Something is the enemy of perfect. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I actually have it. Thank you. On my uh, wall over here, two pieces of writing advice that I have uh, on these little sticky notes. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And uh, one from Brad Thor, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. (laughs) It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard. Absolutely. That is so good. That is so good. And this is a great place to take a short break. So folks, stay with me. I'm with Joshua Hood and we're with the uh, Treadstone Transgression. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have that little feature we've just started. If this scene could talk right here on the Thriller Zone. Uh, There is nothing like the taste of fresh roast coffee. David Temple here for Writer's Block Coffee. And folks, this is my favorite. Deadline Dark is the one I've been drinking more of. As you can see, it's almost gone. This one is their uh, standard blend. And whiskey barrel aged. Packs a little punch. No, there's no alcohol involved. I personally like whole bean. You know why? It's the freshest and I grind it right then. So I'm drinking the very best brew I possibly can. If you'd like to enjoy fresh roast direct to order coffee, go with writer's block coffee. By the way, your first order, 15% off your first order. Just use the code, the thriller zone. How can you go wrong? If you watch the show or listen to the show, you know, I'm always sipping on coffee and this is as they say, the real deal. Writer's Block Coffee. First order, 15% off. Try today. Hey guys, it's Josh Hood, author of The Treadstone Transgression, and I'm hanging out with Dave Temple at the Thriller Zone. Time now for If This Scene Could Talk. Hayes' senses came online like a computer after a hard reset. The pain that accompanied each breath and the copper taste of blood in his mouth welcomed him back to the land of the living. His eyelids fluttered open, and he blinked the world back into focus, wanting nothing more than to just lie there and catch his breath. But the buzzsaw roar of the helo from near the ranch house told him that wasn't an option. Hayes grunted to his feet, 
the tangle of chaparral that had broken his fall, tearing into his flesh like wooden talons. He spit the mouthful of blood into the dust and ripped himself free, the pain breathing new life into the ashes of his rage as he turned toward the ranch. He lurched into a limping run, his eyes hot as coals beneath the mask of dust that covered his face. After the morning run, his legs were all but useless, each step agonizingly painful. But his time at Treadstone had taught him more than just how to kill. It had taught him how to suffer. A year ago, he would have been quick to smother the rising fury, tamp it down before it could consume him. But now he let the rage build, the searing heat flowing through his blood, driving him forward like a machine. Someone is going to wish they had never been born. By the time he reached the low ground, his shirt was soaked with sweat, and he was thoroughly pissed off. His first thought was to attack, hit the helicopter before it had a chance to land. But having lost his pistol in the fall, the only weapons at his disposal were the handful of rocks scattered near his feet. Yeah, that's not going to cut it, the voice said. Knowing there was nothing to be gained by running out into the open, Hayes took a knee, forcing himself to stay still and let the situation develop. Focusing on his breathing, he worked to clear his mind and come up with a plan that would give him the advantage. The most obvious course of action was to try for the shop he'd built in the back of the barn. There were weapons there as well as the remote security panel that would allow him to lock down the house and activate the host of anti-intrusion devices he had emplaced around the property. But with his legs feeling like they were full of lead, Hayes knew he'd never make it. The closer and more accessible option was the weather-beaten tool shed 20 yards to his left. The only problem was, thanks to his overzealous bush-hogging, there wasn't so much as a shrub or blade of grass to conceal him from the helicopter. So how do I get there? The answer came from the helicopter and the scattering of dirt and dust already being kicked up by its rotors. Allowing the pilot to land so Hayes could use the brownout to mask his movement was a smart play. Hell, it was his only play. But once again, the idea that he was actually going to let the helo land was a hard pill to swallow. Take your sweet fucking time he thought. Finally, the pilot found a suitable spot and began his descent, Hayes waiting until the Lakota was enveloped in the pall of dust before grunting to his feet. Staying low, he half-limped, half-jogged the twenty yards to the tool shed, pushed the door open, and stepped inside. Leaving the door cracked behind him, he went to the back of the shed and studied the tools hanging from the pegboard. After first crashing his truck, then being forced on another run, Hayes was in a medieval mood, eager to do bodily harm to whoever came out of that helicopter. But as much as he wanted to inflict the maximum amount of damage on the intruders, he bypassed the freshly sharpened wood axe, as well as the eight-pound sledgehammer, and settled on a seven-inch sickle. He lifted the mini scythe off the peg and slipped back to the doorway, a quick look outside revealing two figures already emerging from the cloud of dust. There was something familiar about the man in the lead, but Hayes couldn't make out his face. The men were threats and nothing more. Whoever they were ceased to matter when they showed up at the ranch. That there were two of them didn't bother Hayes. He'd been trained to work as a single operator, and being outnumbered and outgunned was part and parcel of the job. 
However, the reason he was still alive, while so many of his Treadstone classmates were feeding worms in some third-world shithole, was because he'd made it a point to avoid anything that resembled a fair fight. As an assassin, his job was to attack from the shadows, find a weak point in his target's defense, then hit them at the time and place of his choosing. Unfortunately, with the men closing in fast on the front of the house, waiting wasn't an option. The second man was big and built like a fireplug, but more than his size, it was the way he carried himself that made him a priority. Hayes' plan was to come in hard and fast, take the big man down, and then deal with the other one. The only problem was that his target saw him coming. The man was fast. Hayes had to give him that. Before Hayes could close the gap, his target was shoving the other man to the ground, and his right hand was flashing to the SIG holstered at his waist, tugging the pistol free. Before he could bring it up on target, Hayes was on him, the sickle hissing through the air. He was aiming for the wrist, but the man parried the blow with the pistol, the impact snapping the blade from the handle. With his weapon all but useless, Hayes threw the broken handle at the man's face and then stepped in with a tight right hook to his gut. The man grunted, but instead of folding over as Hayes had hoped, the man brushed it off and tried to backhand him with a pistol. Off balance, all Hayes could do was duck his head and throw up an arm. He blocked the blow, but the crash of the sig against bone left his arm instantly numb. His opponent was quick to take advantage and stepped in, swinging the pistol like a club. But Hayes was ready, and using his good arm grabbed the man by the wrist. He twisted hard, pulling the man off balance, then kicked his legs out from under him. The man dropped like a stone, and before the dust settled, Hayes twisted the sig from his hand, planted a boot in his chest, and shoved the barrel in his face. You even think about getting up, and I will empty your skull, he snarled, pressing the barrel into the man's forehead. Enough, a familiar voice shouted. Hayes froze. Then, with a shake of his head, he took his finger off the trigger and stepped back. I should have known. You're a hard man to find, Levi Shaw said as he finished pulling himself up from the dusty earth. Yeah, not hard enough. Hayes had known the day would come. It was only a matter of time before the Treadstone director reached out and told him it was time to go back to work. But the fact that Shaw had shown up in person and unannounced told him everything he needed to know. Somewhere... Something had gone terribly wrong. And welcome back to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, with Joshua Hood. And as you just heard, that is, if this scene could talk from the book, The Treadstone Transgression, Robert Ludlum's story. Um, Awesome. Thank you again for being on the show today, Josh. I appreciate it. And that, uh, you know, the ambiance and everything you added there in the background, it really... It does make the scene talk. You know, we think that we do a good job setting the scene, but we're, you know, working in such a limited media that when you get to hear these other background noises, you know, it's for me, that's what was in my head. And it's kind of something that um, it, it made me think, man, if I had done this better, you know, maybe I could somehow convey that to the reader without adding. But that was very, very I was blown away. I didn't know that was even possible. Ah, well, all kinds of little magic. Thank you for that. You know, and and I, I've been researching audiobooks. They're making they're they're saying they, whoever they, the collective they, audiobooks are going to become uh perhaps even more 
successful and profitable, etc., than eBooks. And we saw what eBooks did for writers, but uh, audiobooks are just exploding everywhere. And so you're responsible for the Treadstone Resurrection, Treadstone Exile, and now Treadstone Transgression. When you were writing this, there must have been something in your head, especially since you are a Ludlam fan, that you you thought, man, if I had the wherewithal to create that kind of a world like we saw with, that happened with Jason Bourne, I'm going to be set for life. And do you find yourself, and I mean, I don't, if I'm asking a question that shouldn't be asked yet, just tell me and I can cut it out, but will there be more uh, books in your future along this line? I'm actually working on the fourth one now. Um, it takes place in Afghanistan. And the reason I love these books so much is it's harder coming into this genre right now to be able to write the international thrillers that we could have written 10 years ago, you know, the, what Mark and those guys are doing, Jack Carr, Brad Taylor, because those guys are kind of set and those are hard books to get a whole series rolling. And so a lot of people are doing more books set. It's smaller, like set in the United States or set in the South, et cetera. Having Ludlam's name on it, like puts you at the head of the line. You can write whatever you want because, you know, he, the Ludlam books, Born books, and the other books he wrote outside of the, the Born sphere, they, they're huge in scope. And, you know, that's one of his hallmarks. He goes from this place to this place, a lot like, um, you know, James Bond. James you Bond. know a James Bond movie, it's not going to be set in one place. You're no. going to be in every, like, places you've never even heard of before. And that's kind of one of the hallmarks that, you know, I've benefited from is I can write a book in Haiti. Like if you were to, I think uh, the one before this was in um, the, the Ivory Coast. And these are just places that I've always wanted to write books. And, but anywhere else, they'd be like, why would you write a book in Haiti? But with, you know, Ludlum, they're like, okay, what kind of troubles are you going to get to in Haiti? And, you know, you have this, this ability to explore things that you wouldn't at my stage in this game anywhere else, I believe. So back to that to that point, Josh, and that's a good a good place to ask this question. Do you think that without, if you were starting today and you didn't have the Ludlam crest over your head, so to speak, do you think you could write this kind of a book and get the kind of acknowledgement and success? No, yeah. absolutely not. The genres just change so much. You know, um, when I first started, the only person that I knew that had just come out of the military and was writing these books was, was Brad Taylor. Um, and then there was Dalton Fury, but before that, everything was kind of like CIA or whatever. And then you start having soldiers like Delta guys or, you know, special operations guys. And then as the years kind of progressed, everybody started writing that. And so now the market's just so saturated, you know, these are character driven narratives. And so you have to have a character that's doing something different, thinking something different, you know, coming at this, the same seven plots in a different way. And so I don't, I don't think, I think it'd be very difficult for someone just breaking in to get a book like this published now. And this goes back to a comment you made earlier in the show, which I really like. the fact that you like the, <clears throat> we'll use the phrase multi-genre, 
I think Peter was saying something about, you know, I, I, I think of an idea I want to write and I just write the book. I really resonated with that because I, this is why I think if you're a writer and you're gifted with the imagination that maybe everyone isn't, and you just want to write a book about fill in the blank at a place called fill in the blank and the main character is fill in the blank, then you should be able to do that. And I suppose it would then, correct me if I'm wrong, it's up to the editor and or publisher, probably publisher, to decide whether or not that particular story has a niche and a home, right? Yeah, and, and that's another pitfall that a lot of people, and myself included, have fallen into is, is writing for the market. You, you start off being like, well, I really want to write this book, but I don't think anybody's buying these books or nobody's really reading these books. And once you start, for me personally, once you start attaching money or the idea of what you're going to make off of this book or if it's going to be successful, you've already lost the game. You might as well just take that project and throw it away because you're not writing from a space of curiosity you're and, and the reader's going to know that because the books that you know i think the best books that i've written are the ones where i was excited to get back the next day and type what's going to happen next and you know if you just start kind of like writing towards the market like you can't it's like trying to guess which way the wind's going to come you don't know what's going to happen and so if you're stifling your creativity um you know, I would love, I always wonder how many masterpieces are in the slush pile, which is what they call the books that come in and don't get, agents don't ever, you know, take, so they don't ever get published. I always wonder, like, what masterpieces are in those slush piles? Yeah. Well, probably, like, you know, and it's one of those things where if you're going to write a book and you want to write a book, just write, you know, you need to write the book because, the moment that you stop getting something, you know, this is filling some niche or this is scratching some niche or it's interesting you. The moment that you you're giving away so much in these books, if you're not filling yourself back up, then you're just going to become stagnant. Yeah. There's so much to unwrap there. Uh, the very first thing uh, that came to my mind was writing toward curiosity. And I love that because uh, I'm with you. If you're, if you find yourself after a busy day or a, a weekend of taking time off or something, and you find yourself, I can't wait to get back to that keyboard to see what happens next. That's when you know you're in the right place. If you're going, okay, well, I've got to hit these uh, a, a number of beats and I have to finish this arc. And of course, oh yeah, the headline this week will mirror that. Uh, I've, Cause we've all done that. And you go, uh, but I, you know, I've just got to bear through it. I don't think it will have quite the visceral effect that you would hope for. Yeah. For me, um, I don't outline, I just write and. Another pantser. Well, I mean, I, I try to come up with an idea of like where I need to go. Sure. Um, but you know, these for me, like, understanding like i don't understand where this creativity comes from i don't understand a lot of it and so i don't control it and with it so it's kind of like you're just like chasing the muse around and where are we going today what are we doing and you know she's fickle sometimes and yeah. 
if you start trying to like put artifice in here and you're just, well, this is going to work or you're, you're faking the funk, like she's going to smack your knuckles. And I think that I can't imagine how you would write a book in a formulaic way because I get bored. I have ADHD, so I get bored. And it's like, I've already done this. Why do I want to write the same scene or the same book? I don't know. That's probably maybe part of the discipline is yeah. trying to figure out like, how do you write your best book and shut off the noise from outside? And geez, I hope the, I hope your muse isn't a, uh, a nun. A sound, you know, when you said wrapping the knuckles, I was like, uh, well, I was trying to keep it PG. <laughs> my, uh, my muse is like a, uh, you can say whatever you like, by the way. Oh. Well, my muse, I've always looked at it as, you know, one of those slum lords that just comes out of the basement to bang on the door to cuss at me for the rent's late. And so, you know, he's just this guy that's just like, come on, please, man, just give me like 1500 words today. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But, um, you know, that's just kind of the way that this works for me. And I know there's other guys that uh, Brian Freeman the guy who's writing the other born series. I talked to him when this came out, this guy is the most prolific human being I've ever met. So he usually writes two to three books a year. And he said, I just turned in the latest born book. Uh, I wasn't planning on starting it yet. Um, and I was like, wait, 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 wait. You had, what do you mean you just turned it in? You told me you were just starting it. He's like, well, something else came up that I really wanted to do. So I just went ahead and wrote this one in two months. And then turned it in. Yeah. I mean, and so like guys like that, I don't understand how they, you know, they just, I guess they're always on. They just plug into this universal consciousness and here comes this great book. But for me, it's hard work. And I'm just like, I hate you. I hate you, man. I really love it. And he knows this, but I'm just like two months. He's like, yeah. Oh yeah, that is that is easy to hate. Brian Freeman, I'm gonna have to get him on the show because anybody. Oh, he, he is awesome, and he yeah. writes in all different genres too. He writes, you know, his born books. He never written in this genre. What? Yeah, and, and his his first born book. I thought Robert Loveland wrote it. They he was able to capture his style in such a way but also update it in, it was, it's, it's literally, it's magical what he accomplished. Wow. It, and I've, you know, I pick his brain all the time. Like, how do you do this? And he was doing this during COVID. So um, he couldn't travel to these places. And so he was the play, the scenes he would write in Europe are all from memory. Oh my God. Now what other, when you say he writes and, and again, it's your show, but you said he writes yeah. multiple genre. What, what other, he has a series called the Jonathan Stride series, which is, I believe he's been in the New York Times. So it's a, a kind of a police procedural book set in Minnesota. He's written, uh, don't kill me, Brian. I can't remember the name of all of them. He just wrote a book, um, kind of a supernatural science fiction M. Night Shyamalan book type thing set in dealing with this uh Bigfoot Yeti type character, you know, um, he's written speculative fiction. I mean, the guy, and he says, that's what makes him so, you know, able to write so many books is that when he first started, he only thought this was possible. Then he started writing fantasy and science fiction. And then he said, he's pushed his boundaries so far away 
that he now sees that everything's possible. So he's his success, he said, in Born was taking the pacing from a crime novel and, you know, the imagination from a fantasy and then, you know, just putting them together in this stew and it's like a muscle. Right? Yes. And yes. Um, so if you're, it's easy to fall into the rut. It's like, oh, all I do is run today or, you know, but if you go to like a CrossFit type exercise, like you might be running one day, Olympic lifting the next day, you're constantly shocking your body uh, by these new things and it's causing them to, you know, you're getting growth and you're getting dynamic strength that you didn't know was possible. And I, when he told me that, that's immediately what I thought of. That's brilliant. It, your body, like your mind, will rise to the occasion, right? Because it's, right, there's parts of your brain that you don't use or there's parts of your creativity, you know, you get into these same books and you're like, no, I can't do that because, you know, yeah. and I, I always say I wish I could go back to when I didn't know anything. But if you're using different parts of your brain for these different books, you know what you expect. So your brain's like, well, I better meet that expectation. Yeah, yeah. I've always been one of those guys that likes to find that thing that I'm I'm pretty good at that I I can pull this off, but I like to push it to the next degree so that it forces me. So I'll put myself in a really hairy situation to see if I can rise to the occasion. And I know it's going to go one of two ways. I'm either going to surprise myself and and succeed or I'm going to fall flat on my face. And I've always been the kind of guy that goes, well, the worst thing you can do is fall flat on your face. Or if you're asking for somebody to help you, the the only, the worst thing they can do is say no. Okay. So you that's just, the best thing in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You just keep moving. So you say no, great. I'll find somebody who will say yes. So. Well, speaking about that, it's just, um, you know, I knew a guy that wanted to learn how to shoot left-handed when I was in the sheriff's department and he was for whatever reason, he took it to the next level. And for a month, he did everything left-handed. So he was right-handed. He ate left-handed. He opened the doors left-handed. He wrote left-handed. He shot left-handed. And by the end of the month, he literally had made himself ambidextrous. He could do everything. And, you know, he was 35, 36 years old. And it's just amazing what the mind and the body is capable of, like, but so many people want to stay in their comfort zone. And when I said, you know, the best thing that happens is failure is I'm a student of failure because that's what I do the best. But I've also, <laughs> you learn so much taking this hard road than taking the easy road where nothing, you don't appreciate anything. That is such a good piece. I mean, that's the quintessential example of muscle memory, right? Right. The reason the right hand does everything so expertly is because of the muscle memory. But if you change it up, you know that the hand moves, works the same way. It's just under the the brain-hand connection. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to challenge myself. I might even just try that for a month. Well, it's also, it's all about like neuroplasticity. I've read a bunch of books about it. And it says that, you know, the biggest thing that I've realized is that your brain is not your friend. You know, your brain's job is to lie to you and cheat you and everything solely because its main job is to keep you alive. Right. So, you know, you have the fight or flight response. You have, you know, if you, you go on a diet and you, you're trying to cut your calories, your brain's going to, it doesn't know you're trying to cut calories. It's like, he's starving us, store everything. And you're like, why am I not losing any weight? And it's the same thing with your hands and everything else. It's like, well, you know, these neuropathways are like kind of roads in your brain. It's easier to use your right hand for everything. 
Yeah. Why would I use the left hand? And you got to say, no, dude, you work for me. We're going to learn this. I was like, <laughs> oh, fine. I just always have been struck by how much is possible on the other side of what if. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You don't know until you, what if this, what if, you know, and so many people just get so fixated and so blocked by that concept of no. You're like, why is no a bad thing? I think that's the thing that's helped me with writing the most. I know we've gone way off on a tangent. No, no, dude. Matter of fact, my next podcast is going to be called off on a tangent or something like that. I was just writing down neuroplasticity to see if I could spell it right. And I think I did neuroplasticity. If I'm saying there's a that right. lot of great books out there. Um, there's one that I read not too long ago, the art of the impossible. And um, it actually kind of builds upon um, Malcolm Gladwell's outliers where the idea of like 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was on SWAT, that's one thing that we we studied and thought about is like 10,000 hours of a repeated motion. It makes it into muscle memory. Right. It wasn't until a little bit later that I realized that, you know, people say practice makes perfect. Well, that's not true. Perfect practice makes perfect. And so what are you training yourself to do? What is, you know, and the idea that your mind is going to try to find the easiest way for you is you have to be cognizant of is this when I'm writing 1500 words today, am I writing 1500 of the best words I can today? Or am I just writing 1500 crap words so I can check a box and leave? Because your brain is paying attention and it is very easy. We called it in SWAT training scars to, to develop training scars while you're trying to be, you know, you're, you're trying to get to the next level, but you're training yourself in a way where your mind and your body is learning something that you don't want it to learn. The mind is very interesting. I've kind of, yeah. Become like a student of this. Like, what is possible? Well, you have this has now popped into my head the third time. So now I have to say it. And I have to ask you, do you have a nonfiction book in you? And before you answer that, I'm gonna I'm gonna add a little bit to that because you're such a student of life. It's very clear to see that. And you're an avid reader, very clear to see that. And you have an expansive uh, interest. Uh, and imagination. So I'm wondering if you could put some of that training from your background and who you are, both as a former sniper and uh, military and father and husband. I mean, you got some stuff in there. I think it could make a really great nonfiction book. Uh, I've actually, you're the second person in a week that's asked me that. And I've actually never really thought about it. Like, I don't know. When you go down a path of writing about yourself, you have to start that journey by asking yourself, like, am I a role model? And personally, I don't feel like I am. And so I would love to write a nonfiction book because I am interested in so much that um, I don't know if I'd do a biography of myself or something like that. That'd probably be pretty boring. And I'm not necessarily saying, for instance, a memoir or a biography. I'm saying right, here's a great way to break it down, Josh. Um <clears throat> I've always wanted to shoot a sniper rifle. I don't know why uh, they, it, it scares the shit out of me to be honest with you, but I would love to be able to know how to do it. I've watched enough movies and I mean, I loved uh, Stephen Hunter's shooter. I loved uh, Chris, um, Chris Kyle. Thank you. I, I don't know why I'm fascinated by it. So if I came to you and I said, Hey Josh, can you do me a favor? Can you just 
would you give me like, if I showed up and I provided the rounds and you provided the gun, would you teach me how to do it? You'd do it. I think you'd probably do it because you are a, 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 an expert at it and you would probably find, a, you would find interest in helping someone who really wanted to learn it. But I think what you'd bring to the party is, and, and this is a, off the beaten path, but it's to say to you, to encourage you that if, if I said, now I'm doing something wrong here on the basics, you'd go, oh, it's probably because of breathing. We'll say breathing. But you, I have a feeling because of your wide breadth of knowledge, you would be able to teach me little things around actually grabbing the rifle and aiming. Mm. And it's all that stuff that goes in between that is what I'm talking about. And it's learning, hey, how about if we learn left-handed or we, you know, or, or, or shifting instead of right eye, left eye, little things like that. And what it would do is you would find yourself, I think, expanding constantly as you were just making these notes on this potential book down the road. So that's my encouragement to you. I'm going to challenge myself to do that. I don't know what it'll be about, but let's see what we can come up with. Yeah. And the reason I'm so avid about this or, uh, is because uh, I have been um, encouraged by someone recently whom I have profound respect, and he's a prolific writer. And we were telling a story over lunch recently, and he said, what? what what and and i went down this path that i won't bore you with but he said you know man that would make a fantastic book and i was like well it's kind of something secretly i've been thinking about for 10 years well you should do it and here's why and so i'm 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 passing that encouragement yeah. forward because sometimes it's the life stories yeah i love fiction you're making shit up but sometimes it's the stuff you're not making up that you've lived that i want to know about that's a good point. I guess yeah. we were talking earlier about being from the South and it's kind of like you grow up with this being told, like, it's not good to talk about yourself because that's bragging. Right. And it, it's, even though we understand it's not, it's, it, that's like a hard lesson to shape because every time, you know, when I, I first started having to go on podcasts and everything, it was like, well, you know, I'm not really special this. And, you know, the publicists would be like, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that you just accidentally stumbled into a book because like, that's not what happened. You know, you need to tell them about all the hours you spent or, you know, writing a book and getting, you know, halfway through and being like, this isn't right and throwing it away, then having to start over to make the deadline. And it's those things, I guess, you know, you have to give yourself permission to talk about yourself, to help others. Maybe. I think that's the line right there. Give yourself permission to help others. Your trip is your trip. Your journey is your journey. My journey is my journey. But boy, can I learn something that will enhance my journey from your journey without getting to pop psychology here. But Well, I did, uh, you know, I bought a domain name a long time ago. I haven't used it yet, but I, it's called the, the Writer's Garage. And I would love to have something about, you know, something. I get a lot of people asking, how do you write about the craft? I love talking about that. And, you know, maybe having a podcast or something dedicated to that where you um, dissect books or how do you how did he accomplish this? And, you know, maybe calling one of the guys and be like, how did you write this scene? And I'd, I'd like to do something like that to help people, you know, because there was people that helped me get here, kind of return that favor. 
Uh, first of all, I'd say a hundred percent, you should do that. Uh, second of all, I like the fact that, you know, uh, on the photo that uh, I sent out on social media today and that you're going to get a, in your email box, uh, as soon as we hang up, you know, you're wearing the, um, the garage shirt with your name badge on it and you're in standing in front of a filling station and your blog is called under the hood. So I think it all kind of has a motif. You know, that was just one of those things when they asked, we have a headshot. I had this whole headshot for a while and I'm just a blue collar guy. You know, I have a tattoo right here that says rise and grind. It's probably hard to see. But that's how yeah, yeah. I think. Um, rise and that's grind. That's how I live. That's how, you know, I write and everything is. I'm not, you know, you have some of these pictures, you look in the back of books and guys are you know, they're standing next to a wall or they got this smoldering look. That's not me. I'm just a redneck from, you know, Tennessee. And I believe that hard work will help you out. And uh, the garage motif just kind of fit. So maybe that'll be it. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that uh, offline because, uh, and if you want to start launching that into a podcast, just lean on me because uh, I think I got a pretty good idea how to do it. Any other voice because I, I don't, I can't stand to listen to myself. <laughs> That's all right. I'll just do all your audiobooks. All right. Now, I do want to do this right before we get to rapid fire questions because I know I'm eating into the hour, next hour, but I, I do want to ask, and you've already given this in a form, but I always ask all my authors, what's your best piece of writing advice? And this is generally for those guys who are going, hmm, I think this is a career path I want to follow. What would you say? The first piece of advice that I found for myself and I still use is to write fearlessly. And by that, I mean, you can, it was easy for me starting out to have, here's where I want to go. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's, you know, after the book is done, but you can't get to any of those places until you sit down and begin to write and by writing fearlessly it, we all have this inner critic that says that sucks that's not good what are you doing <laughs> you have to just fearlessly push through that and that's what i had to remind myself so many times like the first couple books is like that dude doesn't know what he's talking about because basically what writing comes down to is allow teaching yourself to trust your instinct like if you look at kids playing they they're so imaginative and creative because nobody stepped in yet to say well you can't do that that cow can't fly that train can't talk you know like i watch my son and my daughter play they have like the most brilliant you know games of doing simple things but when you look at it as an adult like that that wouldn't work because you know these boundaries that you place on yourself and then therefore you place them on your creativity and so Writing fearlessly is, hey, along with Brad Thor said, allow yourself to write a shitty draft, but write that shitty draft like you want to write it. Yeah. And to borrow Alex Hayes' little voice that's in your book that's always talking to him, which I love, yeah. and he's always, yeah, shut up, okay, I'm, I got this. You, so as a writer, you can just tell that inner voice to just shut yeah, and sometimes he listens and sometimes not. But yeah. the danger is when you're listening to it. You yeah. know, that was kind of the same thing back with Treadstone is that thinking about that book when I first wrote the first one to now, 
the idea of having Adam Hayes have a family and kids went against the tradition of all the books that had come before. But I thought that it was something new and fresh. And I thought that it humanized a man who was in all effect a government trained killer. He was an assassin. How do you humanize that to make him likable? Right. And, you know, Ludlam had done a great job of making Jason Bourne forget everything, but you can't steal that. So you had, I had to find something else. And so, you know, I think that little voice is something we all struggle with in some ways. I don't know what it is for everybody else, but I think it, it became like this universal type adapter that anybody could put themselves in Adam Hayes's, you know, position and be like, I've been in a position like that. And I've heard that voice telling me to do this. And, you know, sometimes it is the best thing to tell to shut the hell up. <laughs> and I said, Alex Hayes, I'm sorry. It's Adam Hayes. Um, there's a line on a Tom Petty album. The album I think is called wildflowers. And he said, most of what I worry about doesn't happen anyway. And I heard that album come out uh, years ago and I've held on to that line because for some reason in its simplicity is such a profound truth. Most of what you worry about doesn't even happen anyway. You know? Yeah. So it goes along the lines of, I was, my mom used to tell it to me and I was telling it to my son the other day and it was weird. Uh, he was talking about how everybody's looking at me. He wanted, he had to go do a program. He was nervous because everybody was looking at him. And, you know, I said, they're not, you would worry less about how they're looking at you. If you realized how little they are actually looking at you, they're not looking at you. And um, it's one of the same things is like, we give so much power to things outside of our control. And if they happen, they happen because we've manifested them. But most of the times they never happen because guess what? You're not, you know, this shiny snowflake that the entire universe revolves around. <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> oh, the shiny snowflake. All right, ladies and gentlemen, time for rapid fire questions. Going to be four easy ones. Uh, Josh, you, Amy, and the kids are going to about to embark on a long road trip. You get to pick the music that you get to listen to. What is that? Who is the band? or at least the genre of music. And you're going to be listening to this for a nice long time. I like classic rock. So I can listen to any of, you know, Led Zeppelin. I can with Tom Petty, The Doors, um, Rolling Stones. We can le yeah. leave that play in forever. I gotcha. could, uh, awesome. Number two, favorite writing spot, a loud cafe or a quiet library? The cafe. I have a pair of uh, these Bose noise canceling earphones. I actually, uh, Mark turned me on to that. He, he actually writes all his books in a Starbucks. And yeah. uh, I, did, I was like, how do you do that? And he's like, there's an energy that comes and so you're sitting by yourself. And uh, he was right. So I'm going to have to go with that one. I'm with you. The energy of the hustle and bustle around you. There's something about uh, magical about it. All right. You've just been approached by Hollywood who's bought Treadstone Transgression. Yay. Good news. Put it, they're going to put it on the screen for sure. They've asked two things of you, Josh. Number one, to help them pick the perfect uh, haze to play that role. And they'd like you to play a small role in the project. Who would play? Who, who would you like to see play Adam? And who would you like to play? The guy who played Spicoli. Oh, uh, uh, Sean, Sean Penn. Sean yeah, Penn. he did a movie not too many years ago uh, where he was an assassin. I saw that movie and... I picture Hayes 
as that. In fact, when I was writing the first couple of books, I actually would print out a, uh, an actor's face for who I thought would fit in each character. And he was the one I picked for him. Who would I play? Um, I think if they would let me, I'd like to play Shaw, even though I would, uh, he's a little bit older. Like that guy is just a real piece of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just never know. Like, I think he's just a fun character to write because he, he I still don't know, like, where is this dude's morality? <laughs> and uh, side note, I think the movie was The Gunman. The Gunman, yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's see. This is fun. Last one. You and your wife are invited to join my wife, Tammy, and I for a celebratory dinner because you, you just sold the rights to the movie. So we got to celebrate here at our home in San Diego. And to round out the group, I'm asking, we're asking you to get to, to invite two more people, living or dead, to join us. Who would they be? These could be people you've always wanted to meet and or sit down and talk to and why. Robert loved them. So I could ask him what he thought of the book. <laughs> and... Maybe Bruce Lee to beat him up if I didn't like what he said. <laughs> and I think Bruce Lee is a fascinating person. And your first one, that's perfect. Ask uh, Robert what he thought. He, I'm sure he would love them. You know, that I'd just be cool to like pick his brain and um, see like how you, you wrote something and how like all this is metastasized from one book. Like yeah. that's got to be just kind of like, man like this just got to feel good it would be nice to talk to him about how so much he changed through like you know the arc of his career yeah that's awesome well folks if you'd like to learn more about joshua just go to joshuahoodbooks.com and follow him on twitter like i do at joshua hood books josh this has been a real treat and a real pleasure thank you much can't wait to write another book and come back <laughs> you can count on it Thanks again, Josh. What a great time. The Treadstone Transgression, Josh Hood, Robert Ludlum series. Boy, you will not be disappointed. Now, before I mention next week's guest, I want to say once again, thank you to our sponsors, both Writer's Block Coffee, where you can get 15% off your first order, as well as AuthorBytes.com. Three months free with a one-year contract. Both guys, both companies believe in the Thriller Zone. They like what we're doing. We love them and we all win. So take advantage of that. Now, next week, see if you can play along with this. She was a former guest on the Thriller Zone. She loves tea. She's a remarkable writer, probably one of the most energetic, positive, upbeat, lovely women I've ever had a chance to meet. Tori Eldridge, the book is Dance Among the Flames. Now, let me give you a little sneak preview. Tori Eldridge mixes mysticism and horror with seduction and vengeance to conjure real magic. Oh, so it's a little bit different from her last book, Off the Beaten Path, she's going to do. Well, you do not want to miss this episode. Tori is delightful. Little bonus, I have two books. Actually, I actually have three. This one's mine. This one's mine have two more copies. If you would like to win a copy of Dance Among the Flames by Tori Eldridge, all you have to do is write to The Thriller Zone. Our email address is thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Give me a reason why you would like to win this book. 
we will be drawing two names for the show. A one more quick reminder. Chris Haughty, the book is Storm Rising. Next week, Chris and I are going to be at Warwick's in La Jolla. In conversation with Chris Haughty, it's going to be so, so classy, so sophisticated, so fun. The event, may, uh, the event is free. You can reserve some seats. Reserve seating will disappear quickly. Other seats may disappear equally as quickly. So my challenge is, if you're in La Jolla, San Diego area, come see us. Chris is a hell of a lot of fun. We're going to have fun. But once again, Tori Eldridge, Dance Among the Flames. You can win a copy and you can hear her as that show airs next week. That is Thursday, the 12th of May. <sighs> Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I have so much fun doing the show. I hope it shows. I love you guys. And I'll see you next time right here on The Thriller Zone. There was a time I built my own websites. <laughs> I was pretty good at it, but it took a lot of time and a lot of energy, and it was not without challenges. I mean, I built them on Squarespace and TypePad and WordPress and GoDaddy and Wix, but in the end, it was kind of more hassle than it was worth. And then, then when it came time to get hacked, I, I, I just had it. Then, on top of this, when I decided to become a full-time writer, and I, I said, you know, I need a website that shows who I am and does it well, and I don't have to worry about it, and they take care of everything, including getting hacked, which has never happened, ever. I researched some of the biggest guys in the industry. A lot of those names you know. I wanted to play with the big boys, too. So you know what I did? I found the company, AuthorBytes.com. AuthorBytes.com takes care of everything 24-7. It has been delightful. And fortunately, to help pay for the show, they've become a sponsor. They did it last month. They liked the results so well, they're coming back for another round. And I'm pretty excited about it. If you will use the code THETHRILLERZONE, they will simply give you three months free with a one-year contract. What? Yes, there is still free in the world. Sign up for a one-year contract. Get three months free using the code THETHRILLERZONE. And do like I did. Let the professionals handle it. Slide the keyboard away. Forget about the software and the updates and the plugins and all that craziness. Let the professionals do it. Have peace of mind. AuthorBytes.com the Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.